This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. for today comes from December 25th of 1996. Uh, she makes her way into NamUs December 12th of 2008. Uh, it takes place in Lavernia, Texas. Uh, that's going to be in Wilson County, Texas. Now, for basic demographics and information, this is a 32-year-old Caucasian female who was between five feet, four inches and five feet, seven inches tall. She weighed between 120 and 135 pounds. She has brown hair uh, that is curly blonde on the ends to light brown closer to her head. And she has green eyes. Uh, They do note that she had pierced ears and a small mole on the right side of her chin and a scar on her lower right abdomen. This is Patty Inez Brightwell Vaughn. She has a pretty interesting story attached here. Uh, They note a a lot about her. So there was a potential vehicle that she'd been driving. Um, She has a Texas Department of Public Safety uh, case number. Looks like it's got a, a 1997 year on it. She had a black purse containing keys with a small wooden cross on the keychain. She was wearing black pants and a cream-colored blouse. She had a gold ring with a shell design on her right hand, a necklace with a diamond heart pendant. She had diamond stud earrings and a gold watch, a wedding band, and possibly a thumb ring. This was an interesting case for me for one like kind of peculiar factor. She was driving a blue Dodge caravan and it was discovered abandoned with a flat tire on December 26, one day after she was last seen. And anytime somebody's car is found with a flat tire, I always have so many questions about that having happened. Like, you know, is that a setup where somebody's trying to make it look like she was driving away from somewhere? Um, A number of sources for this one, there is an official website for finding Patty Vaughn. There's a Facebook page. There's a tribute page. She's on the Heidi Search Center. She's on NamUs. Uh, Defrosting Cold Cases had her in there. Unsolved Crimes had her. Uh, Multiple uh, websites have popped up over the years, including one called Facts on Patty. The San Antonio Express News has articles on her uh, Bexar County Sheriff's Investigation Discovery has covered her. Um, She's a Christmas case. She's uh, December 25th, 1996. Charlie Project has a good entry on her. Uh, It points out some of the um, discrepancies in the spelling of her names because... Brightwell is sometimes spelled slightly differently. Vaughn is is sometimes uh, got a a missing vowel in it. Here's her story summary from the Charlie Project page. Patty and her husband, Jerry Ray, or J.R. Vaughn, they began a trial separation in October of 1996. 
He moved into an apartment in San Antonio, Texas, and Patty remained at their residence on Oak Park Road in Lavernia, Texas, with their three children. Now, the couple had been married for 11 years. Um, they got married in 1985. Patty was dating a former boyfriend in December of 1996, and her husband found out about the relationship on December the 13th. He and Patty got into an argument about it at her home on Christmas Day of 1996. Patty disappeared from her home that day between 6 and 8 o'clock p.m. JR told authorities that Patty left the house alone on December 25th and simply vanished. He filed for divorce from his wife on December the 26th, one day after Patty was last seen. Other family members were the ones to report her as a missing person to authorities. So one of the other rarities in this case is you very rarely see a two-hour time frame. Well, and a description of what she last had on. And what she had last last was wearing, yeah. Uh, so this case has like a lot of like interesting elements. That time frame, I think, comes from the fact that on Christmas with three kids, people expect you to be places. And when that's the case and you don't show up, somebody ends up having to account for what happened. And in this case, it's JR or Jerry Ray that has to account for it. Right. And my guess is um, there's probably, uh, it probably came from the children, which is really sad, but they were probably like, yeah, um, mommy uh, wasn't there for dinner and, or no, they would have to say like, oh, mommy was there for dinner, but she wasn't there when we went to bed or something like that. Yeah. That probably accounts for the time frame. So Patty's light blue 1991 Dodge Caravan with Texas license plates went with her. And it was discovered with a flat tire on it, abandoned on uh, December 26th, which is the day after she's last seen. The vehicle was located on Loop 1604 in South Bexar County. It was about five miles from Patty's employer, which was Quinny Electric. And it was about 15 miles from her house. Tests revealed that the tire had been intentionally deflated. Now, if that's the case, you've got all sorts of staging going on. What kind of test reveals that? Well, like it could be that like something was, um, I don't. Oh, I, wait, I realized something, but I know, I know why they would say that because the, there was no reason for it to have leaked air otherwise. Right, right. If you put it underwater. Well, I was recently reading. I don't know if you, and I don't want to get like way off on a science sure. story, um, but, but a little bit. I was reading about this group. They're primarily UK based. They detest SUVs and large vehicles. Mm-hmm. They have rules that they follow, but they have this whole website on how to take revenge on people who are causing gas guzzling. Oh my goodness. And they they have this diagram that you can print out and you can, they have brochures that you can print and put on people's cars where you can flatten tires by putting like pebbles and lentils and other things in the cap that press on the valve. And then you screw it down to a certain tightness. It's, it's wild. It's, in my opinion, highly illegal. It's vandalism. That would that would actually work though, because push in the valve, right? When you're trying, if you're like, if your tires are overinflated or something. Yep. Or you push it in and hold it, and you cap. Hopefully, you have something that locks when you're inflating your tires. But I realized as soon as I said it, well. I mean, there would have to be a slow leak in it. And if they filled it back up, you know, within a small amount of time, it would leak again, right? Correct. I think that I don't even want to know why you were were looking at that website. Um, It came up in the course of a case I was following where (laughs) someone was driving. And I want to say it actually happened in Germany. So the idea behind this group is by the time the tire deflates, if you do it the way they say to do it, you're far away from, like the person whose tire has deflated is far away from 
wherever you were when you did it to them. But someone had an accident in a high on a high speed highway, and it was linked back to something like what this group described. I was going to say uh, a big SUV that would invoke the kind of feelings I imagine that you know are being expressed there. It, it would be really dangerous uh, to do that because it, it could result in someone's death. Right. Um, and so I would just say, I understand it. And the best thing that you can do is your own part and mind your business. Don't worry about everybody else. I would tend to agree with you. There. Especially like that. I mean, that's petty, right? That's ridiculous. Um, it, uh, you know, you can only control your own actions. So, yeah. So Charlie project has a number of photos posted, including one of the van that had its tire intentionally deflated. There was a pile of men's clothing inside of the van. And one of the items that has been singled out is a red workman's jumpsuit, like a pair of coveralls that maybe an auto mechanic or plumber might wear. Uh, the, the jumpsuit has an emblem on the back with the letters JM in white. And that photo appears attached to this case on a couple different places, including Charlie Project. Don't you think it's weird that um, her husband's name is J.R.? And that is J.M.? Yeah, like maybe he had a brother or a cousin. I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that something like that is going to be indicative of, like, Jerry's mechanic shop or something. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess company logo, but it seems like if that were the case, if it weren't just like somebody's own, own uh, monogrammed coveralls, they would have been able to figure out who it belonged to. Yeah, you would think. I, I, you would think that would be the case. So, Charlie Projects says that this is last updated May 19th of 2021. But I'm going to read some of the stuff they have collected here from all the sources I named earlier. They even have more than what I named, which is interesting. Um, I missed some of the ones they have, or those have been archived at this point. Because this case is getting older. If this happened in 1996, we're coming up on the 27th year here. So this is what the last of their summary here says. Investigators searched Patty's residence and the van and discovered blood inside the van on the walls and floor of Patty's bedroom, in the bedroom closet, in the master bath, and on a mop inside the house. And they said that someone had attempted to clean the blood from the house prior to it being discovered, and that the van's carpet had been recently shampooed and was still wet. DNA testing proved that the blood was Patty's. Authorities also found DNA from an unknown female who was not Patty inside of her van. Now, Patty's mother, Patsy Wallace, was charged with burglarizing J.R.'s residence and assaulting, with a, assaulting him with a baseball bat in February of 1997. So that's just two months after Patty goes missing, that Patsy Wallace is charged with burglarizing JR's residence and assaulting him with a baseball bat. She said she did it because she thought he was involved in her daughter's disappearance. Uh, so no case has ever been brought to trial about this. Uh, I think the charges in that instance were eventually dropped. JR has never been charged with Patty's disappearance. He now resides in Colorado and he maintains his innocence in the case of Patty's disappearance, he states that he believes she had left him deliberately. Three kids. I you know, that's a weird one. She didn't leave him deliberately. I mean, it, did she uh, like, did again, she spray her blood all over her bedroom? Again, statistical anomalies. I mean, the, the number of people who leave their children deliberately, like in a case like this, is, is very, 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 very rare. On Christmas Day, during a two-hour window of time that they recall specifically? Well, uh, it goes on to say that a few months after Patty dis uh, Patty's disappearance had occurred, investigators looking for evidence in her case examined the foundation of a, a Natalia, Texas school that J.R. had helped build. They searched behind the school gymnasium in June of 2006. Now, in 2005, J.R. had Patty legally declared dead. 
and he actually attempted to collect her life insurance. Shortly after doing this, Patsy Wallace, Patty's mom, she filed a civil wrongful death suit against him. And a judge ended up ruling that the life insurance payout would be held in trust for the couple's children. In December of 2008, investigators announced they believe they were close to solving Patty's case. They stated that three friends of the Vaughns are now the focus of the investigation. JR is still the primary suspect in Patty's disappearance, but police believe that these three family friends may have helped dispose of her body. None of these individuals have been publicly identified. No arrests were made at that time, and no arrests have been made since then that I can find. Did you find any since 2021? No. Um, in fact, uh, nothing has come. Oh, wait. Since 2021? Yeah. Oh, I thought it said that was in 2008. That is in 2008, but the last time that Charlie Project updated it is... Oh, I see. Um, no, uh, no it, from what I can see, nothing has actually uh, come to fruition with regard to that. And what I assume that means is like they don't have enough solid evidence to bring charges against anybody. Right. Um, and it's interesting how uh, they mention that they're thinking it was three family friends, right? Right. Um, So this would be, this is interesting. They must have something that indicates. Now, was he at the, was the, um, was JR at the house on Christmas? Yeah, he was at the house. I assume it was to see the kids or some kind of exchange. Right, to have like Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so he's there and... There's a very specific, you know, situation happening. To me, there's absolutely no question that uh, she did not leave on her own accord. And that leaves very specific set of circumstances that occurred, right? Yeah. And and there's no question. And, you know, so why hasn't it been charged, right? And I would say he must somehow be accounted for. And that's why they've defaulted to looking at who, you know, because she ended up somewhere, right? She's at the house, then she's not at the house, and her van is in a certain place with, like, a weird situation happening. I, I would love to know what the thought process behind the gu- the pile of male's clothes was, right? Yeah. And all that, the whole situation happening, it, it's interesting and... I mean, it, it sort of suggests investigators were trying, right? Yeah. Uh, they're trying to establish something that occurred. I'm very surprised if there were actually three family friends involved that somebody hasn't spoken up yet. I think what they meant to say was three of his friends, right? Three from his side, somehow. Because three family friends would not have, you know, if they were friends of hers, right? They would not have put up with this. Uh, but I also think that they had absolutely nothing to do with her death. I have a feeling this was a like a like a domestic violence crime of passion, right? He was mad. Um, oh, I'm sure it was. And anytime there's like so much blood involved and everything, and there is no telling what he did with her body. But it's interesting that they immediately went to like construction that he had access to, right? That's kind of horrifying well they so they search in those places you know there's a number of different things that sort of point to we might not know ever in this case um i hope that they solve it but i don't see you know if you've got multiple people and none of them have ever talked that's a little strange to me the unknown female blood in the van that was also a little strange it was dna unknown female dna in the van i thought okay either way the, un- the unknown DNA being a female, and I saw in one of the articles it was someone not related to her. Right, but there's also a pile of man's clothes. Um, yeah. And the female DNA could have been associated with those. Oh, it could have been. I didn't think about that. You're, yeah, like, you're right. Because it, it doesn't say that it was black. I actually, um, I was thinking about that too. The 
it was just DNA. So we're talking spit, saliva, skin. Uh, it could be a variety of things, right? Yeah. I don't know, like, if it seemed like uh, they were trying to point it towards somebody that after she left the house, like, she had been abducted and somebody decided to live in her car or something. I mean, it feels a little like that. Yeah. And so that was sort of confusing. And then it's almost like they got clothes from like goodwill or something. Right. Or something to, to, you know, disguise a body for a minute. I don't know. Well, right. Uh, uh, But it seems like they would have been like, if he had used his own clothes, it seems like he it would have been apparent that they were. Well, I'm not saying they're his clothes. I'm saying that someone else brought over to help cover up a body. Like you put the body under the pile or something. Right, right. And, you know, then they left him there. But why leave him, right? I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't know either. Um, but uh, this is, like, super sad. Her kids were pretty young, it looks like. There's like a picture of the family all together, I assume, maybe like the year before or something. And um, I'm sure that that has just haunted them. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, I wonder how they get to, because I, I, I've seen quotes on this. This thing has popped up on Dateline over the years. I know that uh, Dateline started running episodes on it and they've run a couple different ones. I've seen where people talk about, uh, they believe the body was encased in concrete. And I wonder, like, what evidence do we not know about there? He worked in construction. Yeah, but they, they were the investigator that was speaking in the clip I saw went way further than that. Well, somebody that, might be talking. Yeah, it could be. It could be. That's how they get uh, to the point where they have this information. And depending on, you know, if the investigator has firsthand knowledge of however it was that they looked for her, because this wasn't going to be a case where, like, they thought she ran off, I don't think, especially not after they discovered the blood everywhere, right? Yeah. If he had knowledge of, you know, there were only so, they only could have gone so far with her, right? And we haven't found her in the parameter that she would have gone, right? Yeah. So she's got to be somewhere, right? And encased in concrete is a place where if she's at, she, it's possible she'll never be found. Yeah, uh, maybe not in our lifetime until someone you know does something to disturb the concrete. I would be very interested to know though, um, which it seems like they, you know, they had some sort of knowledge. It, it was later, but it, you know, they were looking to see like, well, what was put up around that time, right? Right. And, you know, like I said, I've said before on this show, I always take notice when somebody's pouring a patio. I don't know why. Huh. I'm just I saying. <laughs> it's you know, always, it, it's bothersome, right? It's interesting. I I have, I've gotten to the point now, I don't actually use concrete unless I absolutely have to use it. I actually use gravel. Right. For all the things that you would use concrete for, I use, you know, gravel. And then there are different types of, sectioning you can do with foundation blocks but uh, that that is that is interesting i i feel awful for the family in this situation and i do hope that um that she's found or that you know someone finally gets that holiday feeling and they confess to this so she was the um 48th case put into namus yes number 48 that's interesting so she was uh you know a long time uh, missing person. Yeah, I have um, I have an exoneration case today. Um, I think you you've seen it. Have you ever seen anything like this one? No, I'd never seen anything like this one, and I I'd never seen this one. Yeah, this one is um, it, it is a it's a federal case, which uh, I don't we have I have not seen a lot of federal exonerations. They do happen. This is the Northern District of California. And the reported crime date on this one's 1943. The conviction doesn't happen until 1949. And then she's exonerated in 1977. And if I had to name this something, I would probably say that it should be called 
a series of most unfortunate events. Yeah, we get a lot of those. And this is definitely, it's probably the highest on the list for that. Um, but I thought it would be a good story to tie into the home for the holidays. It's not murder. That's one thing. Uh, that's It is not murder. No, yeah. not at all. This is a treason case. Uh, this, the sentence for this was 10 years, a $10,000 fine in 1943, which was a huge amount of money, and revocation of U.S. citizenship. Now, the official contributing factors are perjury or false accusation and official misconduct. And the demographic factors are, uh, this is an Asian female who was 27 years old in 1943 when the crime occurred. Uh, we are talking about Iva Tagori uh, Diaquino. She's a Japanese-American born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Uh, in July of 1941, at the age of 25, Iva, then a pre-med student at UCLA, she traveled to Tokyo from Los Angeles to visit her sick aunt. She used a certificate of identification from the U.S. Department of State to travel to Japan. Upon arrival, she applied for a passport, but she was rejected by the U.S. government due to questions about her citizenship. And then... While Iva is in Japan in 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked on December 7th. So the U.S. is entering World War II. So because she had spoken English at home in California, Iva doesn't know much Japanese, and she struggled to find any kind of work in Tokyo. The Japanese authorities denied her a food ration card because she refused to... to uh, denounce her U.S. citizenship. So she finds herself in this position where she needs money. In mid-1942, since she still can't go home, she found a job as a typist for the Domain News Agency. And there she met uh, Philippe D'Aquino, who was a Portuguese national of Japanese and Portuguese descent. So April 19th, 1945, she got married to him. But on August 23rd, 1943, she began to work at Radio Tokyo as a part-time English language typist. The Japanese were really ramping up their propaganda efforts in the early 40s. And they created a new radio show for Radio Tokyo during 1943 as part of that increased propaganda effort. That show was called Zero Hour. It was in reference to the Japanese fighter planes. The man in charge of that program was Major Shigetsugu Tonishi. He employed three allied POWs to read the broadcast, which would be written by Japanese army propagandists. Propagandists are an interesting bunch of people, no matter what side they're on. But the Japanese hope was that the propaganda would be more effective if it was being read by American voices. I wonder if they um, took into consideration that the American voices were prisoners of war. Oh, I, I, who knows? This, this is a whole civil affairs branch of, you know, the Japanese army that's designing this. Uh, you, do you mean they take that into consideration or do you mean the, the listener takes that well, either one, really, but like they were hoping that the uh, the message that was being put out uh, would be more effective coming from an American voice, right? Like right. That everybody would realize, like, oh, well, you know, they have no choice; they're being held against their will. They have to do whatever they're told to do, right? Well, one of the things that's so interesting about Japan at the time is so. Up until this point, Japan is the empire of Japan. And until they have a reformed constitution in 1947, that's sort of how they're going to remain. And that's, you know, that's a, in my opinion, kind of a bizarre thing. You don't, like, you know, we don't see, like, a lot of that behavior anymore from countries. We do have some countries that are clearly still being run in a way that, like, the citizens are the last on the list. But the Empire of Japan at that time, 
uh, it was already like this unpredictable world power. And now we're seeing sort of the insides of it. But what's weird is this is technically someone who is a descendant, a Japanese descendant. So them, you know, treating her like this and then what's, what's about to happen to her is going to be the U S government also not treating her. Well, I, I, I might buy some of the propaganda if I were her. Uh, I'm going to butcher some of these names because uh, we're getting into a, a lot of Japanese names as we go here. I'm going to get as close as I can. I'm going to stick to Iva for uh, our lead character here. In November 1943, at the behest of George Mitsushio, a Japanese-American who was in charge of finding news stories for the broadcast with the help of Ken Sichi Oki, Iva was told she was going to be placed as an announcer on the Zero Hour program. After initially hesitating due to her lack of experience in this field, Iva was convinced by one of the POWs from the show, and she begins her, what we can only describe as fateful, run as an announcer. Iva's segment of the hour-long show lasted for about 20 minutes each day. So what she would do is she would read brief scripts that were written for her by these POWs, who had taken over the script writing responsibilities from the Japanese civil affair officers. And they would play popular music of the time. Iva's nickname on this show is Orphan Anne, with Anne being short for announcer, and Orphan referring to either Orphans of the Pacific or Little Orphan Annie. So Orphans of the Pacific was a popular phrase that was used in American broadcasts to refer to American GIs. And obviously, Little Orphan Annie is a that's a pretty popular comic strip at the time. Um, I I realized that I, I thought I knew what was going on with Little Orphan Annie. Have you ever? Do you know much about it? No, I don't. So it it's a comic strip that was named after the 1885 poem Little Orphan Annie by James Whitcomb Riley. It came out in the New York Daily News in August of 1924. So. All the things that I know about Little Orphan Annie come from that. It follows her adventure, like Annie and the dog Sandy, and then Daddy Warbucks, and Punjab, and the Asp. All those characters come from that. But that's a comic strip that ran. It actually ran all the way till 2010. But the creator of the comic, Harold Gray, he passed away in 1968. And there were multiple people that you know drew and wrote on this uh, on Little Orphan Annie, but it didn't like it wasn't some TV show or musical or movie or in my head what I thought it all came from was a radio show, but the comic strip actually comes first, and then the radio show comes I don't know ten years later or something. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so that you know that comes from this time period as well. Maybe I'll look into that tomorrow. After the war ended, two American journalists offered a reward for the identity of the real Tokyo Rose. Now, Tokyo Rose was the name of a propaganda broadcaster in Tokyo who had become famous for her morale-killing broadcast during the war. There was, however, no real Tokyo Rose. The name was invented and used by American GIs to refer to the female broadcasters, it didn't actually refer to one specific person. None of the people that were portraying the female announcers during that period used the name Tokyo Rose. So these journalists, they get a tip from someone, someone within Radio Tokyo, and they are able to obtain an interview with Iva. So what they've been told when they get this tip from this person, who's this informant, who's given this over is that Iva is Tokyo Rose. So they run an article in late 1945 that identifies Iva Aquino as Tokyo Rose, even though she never admitted to being Tokyo Rose. So on October 17th of 1945, Iva gets arrested and she gets held for a year. She's released on October 25th, 1946, after authorities decide they're unable to find sufficient evidence to warrant a prosecution. That is crazy. Well, right, especially since they've already said that 
like Tokyo Rose doesn't exist. Yeah. Two years after this, a American journalist named Walter Winchell, he starts arguing against Iva being allowed to return to the United States. So she gets arrested in Tokyo. The case gets reopened. And Iva is brought to San Francisco, where she's officially arrested on September 25th of 1948 for treason. On October 8th of the same year, she gets indicted for eight counts of treason for aiding the Japanese government during World War II. The trial begins on July 5th of 1949. It's 12 weeks long, and it costs $750,000. At the time the trial is is going on, it is the most expensive court case in American history. Forty witnesses come in and testify for the prosecution. And while this happens, so they've got they get testimonies from the POWs and from Sunishi, uh, who's in charge of Zero Hour, they for the prosecution attest in their testimony that Iva is innocent. But George uh, Mutsushio from Radio Tokyo and Kenkichi Oki, they both testify to having witnessed overt acts of treason by Iva. They provide the necessary two eyewitnesses to overt acts of treason that are required to convict a person of treason. Now, do you know what they're referencing here? Not specifically, no. Okay, so in the in the United States, the treason laws in the United States are, interestingly, the only crime that is defined at the federal level in the United States Constitution. It's defined as only in levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies and giving them aid. All right. Because of the way this goes down, the penalty for treason is death. It's not less than five years imprisonment with a minimum fine of $10,000 if not sentenced to death. And any person convicted of treason against the United States also forfeits the right to hold public office. It gets so specific in how you can be convicted of treason that you are required to have two witnesses that have seen you convict, uh, seen you commit overt acts against the United States government. Like it's a requirement of you being prosecuted for treason. Make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's all sorts of weird things in how, and how this go ahead. Well, right off the bat, I mean, you get two people that um, were in a vicinity to see Iva supposedly commit these overt acts, right? Right. What does that tell you, like, immediately? What, it, that it's it, bullshit or that it's a reach? What, what do you? What th- it tells me is, like, I mean... If you're in the vicinity to see this happen, you're just as likely to be accused as well, right? So which end of that do you want to be on? Oh, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, they're not charged at that point. So I guess just, that's I I'm guess just, that's where we're headed with it. Well, I'm just saying, and, you know, you've also got to take into consideration uh, sort of you know, where the United States was, like, the mentality um, after the Pearl Harbor attack, right? Yeah. Um, it was a I, – I, I feel like I don't even fathom it, really, um, because the only thing I can compare it to is, like, post-9-11 for me because I was alive during that and kind of how the world shifted. There's a very similar shift um, after – Pearl Harbor was attacked, right? There was a a lot of hatred and prejudice against uh, the Japanese as a people, right? Yeah. Even Japanese Americans here that, you know, had lived in the United States their whole lives. There was a lot of, I mean, and it was warranted animosity um, towards 
the country, right? Because yeah. they had attacked us, but it, you know, but it was taken out in, in lots of wrong ways. But so you have to sort of take that into consideration. You're looking at a situation where this is, you know, most treason cases have political undertones, but like this was putting, this was making an example, right? This case yeah. was all about making an example out of someone who had allegedly, um, committed treason against the United States. It sort of backfires, I mean, a little bit, but not really because they did get the conviction, right? But I feel like the two witnesses who um, had the opportunity to witness these acts, they were testifying there because they didn't want to be on the other side being accused of it. Yeah, I, I would, yeah. They, they are basically testifying to save their own ass. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, okay. So here's another thing you have to remember about this time frame. Now, even though while we're we're talking about this July 5th, 1949 case, um, it was a terrible time to be Japanese or Japanese-American in America. During World War II, the United States, starting in, you know, early 1942, probably late January, early February, uh, through 1946 – forcibly relocated and incarcerated more than 125,000 people of Japanese descent at 75 identified incarceration sites or concentration camps. So of the 127,000 Japanese Americans living in the continental U.S., 112,000 of them lived on the West Coast. And this taking place three years after that on the West coast in the United States is wildly sensational. Well, sure. And the reason why we suddenly had these, um, it's terrible to call them uh, concentration camps, but that's what they were is because we lost all of our trust, right? Correct. And uh, we, and the, the government, the United States government was like, we don't know what kind of sleeper cells or spies or whatever might be here, right? Right. And, like from Japan. And so that's the whole thing. Now, I mean, obviously, it was, a, it was the wrong thing to do, but I don't know what the right thing to do would have been. So, Well, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's complex. All, everything that went on here is so complex from the perspective of racial and political overtones. Um, it's, it's really it's, it's difficult to talk about her case and not talk about what was going on in the world at the time. Because you're right, it is a little odd to call them concentration camps, but that's exactly what was happening. No, yeah, you're right. They were. It's just this part of, um, I don't know about you, um, and I don't know about other people, but this is not a part of history that is dwelled upon in like U.S. history class in the public education system of the United States. Yeah, they're pretty, it, it's, they whitewash it quite a bit. They gloss over a lot of the details here, um, which is why I'm bringing it up in, in terms of what the, what the news and the media would do with a trial like this at oh, that it, time. It was, it was a huge deal. They were taking out a lot of grievances on this, this young lady. Basically, Yeah, they absolutely were. Now. So I mentioned her arrest already and we're to the trial, but I'm going to go back just a little bit. I want to, I want to talk about a little more of this. Um, so one of the things that was key to all of this is August 15th, 1945, the Empire of Japan surrenders. And that is when reporters really started looking for Tokyo Rose. So you've got a guy named Harry Brundridge who wrote for a magazine called Cosmo. At the time, I guess it would have been Cosmopolitan. Um, it might still be. Maybe I'm just ignorant. But Clark Lee was from Hearst International News Service, or INS. They were the ones who got together and sort of made Iva into Tokyo Rose. Now, she took the money for the interview because they were offering $2,000, okay? That's what ultimately gets uh, turned into her confession. So Harry Brundridge, who is a journalist, doesn't even pay Iva the $2,000. He turns around and tries to sell the transcript of the, of the interview to the FBI. 
So that's how the first case against her falls apart. Now, one of the big things that's happening that she wants to get back after the surrender so quickly is she wants, she's pregnant and she wants to have her child on American soil. The baby ends up being born in Japan, but dies. So when the baby dies, she gets rearrested at the, uh, sort of the behest of Walter Winchell, who, if you don't know anything about him, he's a pretty famous critic, but he started out as a vaudeville performer who was not great at doing that. Mostly what he did was he wrote in, the early New York tabloids and he was very against her coming back to the United States. So following the death of the baby, that is when Iba is rearrested and that is how she ends up in this sensational trial. Now, like Meg said, there are people trying to save their ass related to this trial. Um, and they are definitely not trying to save her ass. She is sort of out there floating on her own. She's defended by a pretty good team of attorneys, including Wayne Mortimer Collins. He was a pretty prominent advocate for Japanese-American rights at the time. And as this trial goes on for her eight overt acts of treason, it becomes the longest trial in American history, in addition to being the most expensive. So Wayne Mortimer, Mortimer Collins had enlisted the help of Theodore Tamba, and Theodore Tamba became one of Iva's closest friends. He had on her behalf uh, a witness named Charles Cousins, who himself had been acquitted of treason by Australian authorities in November of 1946. Same setup as all of that. But on September 29th of 1949, the federal jury found Iva guilty of a single charge. Now, this charge was technically count six in the indictment, and it stated that on a day during October 1944, the exact date being to the grand jurors unknown, said defendant at Tokyo, Japan, in a broadcasting studio of the Broadcasting Corporation of Japan, did speak into a microphone concerning the loss of ships. Do I need to say that again, or did you catch that? I caught it. Do you have the exact quote? Uh, I think the exact quote is, now you fellows have lost all your ships. You really are orphans of the Pacific. How do you think you will ever get home? Is that what you were looking for? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So on October 6th of 1949, the judge sentenced Iva to 10 years in prison. He fined her $10,000, which was the minimum fine. And he stripped her of her U.S. citizenship. She was the seventh person in U.S. history to be convicted of treason. Say that one more time. She was the seventh person in U.S. history to be convicted of treason. So treason is such an important and difficult thing that only six other people have been convicted of it. And somehow this girl from California who found herself visiting a sick aunt during the invasion of the Japanese on Pearl Harbor, becomes the seventh person to be convicted of treason. None of the POWs who had participated in Radio Tokyo or written scripts, um, I read that they were primarily American and Australian. None of them were charged with treason. Nor were any of the folks who had been involved with Zero Hour or the other 200-plus Japanese-American employees of the Japanese government in the civils, civil affairs and propaganda roles. After her conviction, Ivan never saw her husband again. He was unable to obtain a visa to visit the U.S. Six years and two months after she was sent to prison, Iva was released uh, for good behavior. Attempts to deport her were eventually stopped, and Iva moved to Chicago, where she worked in the shop that her family had started. She was no longer a U.S. citizen, so she could not visit her husband in Japan because that would make her unable to return to the United States. It would not be 
until the 1970s when she was finally uh, acquitted of what had happened. So there's a number of things that went on here. Two journalists from the Chicago Tribune, um, Ronald Yates, who was the Far East correspondent and the Tokyo bureau chief for the Tribune, he went back and started interviewing the witnesses that were so important that uh, you pointed out were probably saving their own asses. Specifically, those two witnesses' testimony had been what helped convict her in the first place. During they, they provided the two specific uh, witnesses of the overt acts, right? Yeah, it was the only one that, that could be proven before the jury. During the interview with Ronald Yates, both of those men admitted they had been forced to provide false testimony and withhold vital information during the trial. The two men said that the FBI had harassed and threatened them. They also said that other government witnesses were bribed by the U.S. officials to provide damaging testimony. They admitted that they had never heard of Ida. They had never heard Ida make any treasonous broadcast or statement, which was a complete 180 from their testimony at trial. A series of articles that Ronald Yates wrote for the Tribune end up published in March of 1976. They followed a previous series that had been published in February of 1976 by Linda Witt. Linda Witt had questions about Ida's prosecution, uh, Ida's prosecution and the whole process. Together, the two series made a strong case for Iva having been innocent. So the case against Iva was, had all sorts of problems, not to mention the fact that like as, as weird as it was, as long as the trial lasted, as costly as it was, it's really about this one person who has nothing to do with all of the international incidents and spectacle going on around her. Grand jurors had been skeptical of the governor's case of the government's case from the get-go. Now, Tom DeWolf, he was a special assistant attorney general, and he was a veteran of radio treason prosecutions. And he complained that it was necessary for me to practically make a 4th of July speech in order to obtain an indictment. And this led him to urge the Department of Justice to further investigate and shore up the case in Japan. The further work creates more problems for DeWolf. Soon after Iva was indicted, uh, one of the witnesses, which is uh, Hiromi Yagi, he admitted that everything he said to the grand jury was made up. Now, the FBI, to their credit, they keep a history of this case around that you can go and read. And there are case history notes that neither Brundage nor the witness uh, uh, Hiromo Yagi testified at trial because everyone knew they were perjuring themselves. None of them ever get charged with perjury, by the way. Okay? Yeah, of course not. So the witnesses that talked to Ron Yates, they stated that the FBI and the occupational police, which are the United States police in Japan after the surrender, had coached them for over two months about what they were supposed to say and that they had been told if they did not participate in this trial and say what was told to them to, to be said and cooperate, then they were going to be tried for treason. So those, the Ron Yates article, the Linda Witt article, they get followed up by uh, a Canadian-American broadcast journalist who is a long-term CBS News correspondent named Morley Saffer. He reports on 60 Minutes about this. And in 1977, Iva is granted a full and unconditional pardon by U.S. President Gerald Ford based on everything we just said. And that was on January 19th, his last full day in office. The decision was supported by unanimous vote in both houses of the California State Legislature, by the National Japanese American Citizens League, and by uh, Senator Hayakawa, who is a, a U.S. senator from California. The pardon restored her U.S. citizenship, and 
it had been, it had only been revoked because of the conviction. Right. And uh, President Gerald Ford pardoned her without comment, which is, that's pretty common actually. Yeah. So in 1980, she got uh, divorced from her husband, uh, primarily because he was never allowed uh, to be admitted into the United States. On January 15th of 2006, the World War II Veterans Committee awarded IVA its annual Edward J. Uh, Hurley Citizenship Award, citing her indomitable spirit, love of country, and the example of courage she has given her fellow Americans. According to one biographer, uh, IVA found it to be the most memorable day of her life. And on September 26th of 2006, at the age of 90, uh, Iva died of natural causes in a Chicago hospital. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime Excess code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. 
It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Pure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach, I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime, I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. 
To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop better hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.